Listener production. Hello, Tom here. Welcome to The Briefing. In this episode, we'll ask whether the teal wave will swamp the upcoming state elections and whether that will be a good or a bad thing. If you look at democracies where this has happened, where the vote for the major parties has dropped off, it has corresponded with, I guess, more fringe groups, more extremes from the left and the right getting in. Yes, those are the smooth sounds of Annika Smethurst. While we had her here for the last few days, her and I went deep into a chat about the independent candidates in those wealthy seats, the ones that helped defeat Scott Morrison, and looked at whether those sort of candidates are going to affect the upcoming state elections in New South Wales and Victoria. And as you can hear, her analysis comes with a bit of a warning note. That is our briefing in just a moment. First, Rihanna Patrick is here for today's headlines, fresh from the Byron Bay Writers Festival. How was it, Rihanna? It was amazing. I learned a lot about magpies and light pollution. Oh, right. How so? Oh, apparently there's too much light in the world and magpies need to sleep with a lot of dark and there's not enough dark for them to sleep. So it's causing insomnia. Wow. The amazing things you learn at the Byron Bay Writers Festival. That sounds fun. Let's get into today's headlines. It is Wednesday, the 31st of August. Guilty. After 40 years, Sydney school teacher Chris Dawson has been convicted of murdering his wife, Lynette. Christopher Michael Dawson on the charge that on or about 8 January 1982 at Bayview or elsewhere in the state of of New South Wales, uh, you did murder Lynette Dawson. I find you guilty. That is Justice Ian Harrison, who took five hours to hand down his verdict yesterday following a 10-week judge-only trial. It's a trial that gripped the nation because of the Teacher's Pet podcast, and the prosecutors alleged that Dawson was motivated to kill Lynette in order to have an unfettered relationship with their teenage babysitter, JC. Yeah, the defence argued that the mother of two may have abandoned her family after trust was broken, but the judge found that the argument that she made an unexpected decision to leave was extremely unlikely. So after considering all the evidence, Justice Harrison was satisfied beyond reasonable doubt that Lynette died as a result of a conscious or voluntary act by Chris Dawson with the intention of causing her death. Uh, Lynette's family says justice has been served, but they still hope to find her remains. The journey is not complete. She is still missing. We still need to bring her home. We would ask Chris Dawson to find it in himself to finally do the decent thing and allow us to bring Lynn home to a peaceful rest. Lynette's brother Greg Sims there and here's what Dawson's lawyer Greg Walsh had to say. It's probable that of course he will appeal against his conviction. Mr Dawson has always asserted and he still does his absolute innocence of uh, the crime of which he's been convicted. So you can hear the choppers in the background there. I assume they're news choppers. This has just been an absolutely huge story. Um, Dawson's sentencing is still to come. That'll happen at a later date. But at 74 years old, he may never get out of jail. And this has just been an enormous story. There's been two coronial inquests into her death some time ago. And the journalist from the Australian, Headley Thomas, who drove that podcast, has been following this story for years and years. And they're claiming a massive victory that their journalism helped the police and the prosecutors do their job. And the huge golfing news we've all been waiting for is finally here. Australian golfer Cameron Smith will join the Saudi-backed Live Tour. Yeah, this is massive. So it's understood the deal's worth $140 million. He's the highest player in golf. 
to sign with the Rebel League. He's number two in the world. And the rumours have been circling for weeks. Uh, You might remember that awkward moment after he won the British Open where he was asked about it and he... um, he didn't seem to like the question, did he, Rihanna? No, no, he didn't. And, you know, that Live Golf series is controversial because it's been accused of sports washing the Saudi government. And the traditional PGA Tour is banning players who take part in the Saudi tournament from playing in their competition. So he'll make his debut in the Live Tour later this week. It's all happening pretty fast. I imagine it's been in the works for a little while. There's an event being held at Boston at the International Golf Club. Um, It's also come out that uh, another Aussie golfer, Mark Leishman, has also signed to the Rebel League. So massive news in golf. Imagine that, around $140 million at 29 years old. I know, it's it's unbelievable. But from what he told Golfers Digest, it was partly about that financial benefit. It was also about the schedule, that it was really appealing and that he'd get to spend maybe a little bit more time here in Australia as well as perhaps an event coming this way. The scheduling, as if... That would have nothing to do with it. Come on. I mean, he's made about $40 million in his career so far, so he's instantly tripled that again. And um, I guess he can do whatever he wants with his schedule now, can't he? A new COVID vaccine that inoculates against both the original and Omicron strands of the virus has been given provisional approval by the TGA. So Moderna expects their new Omicron booster will be rolled out within weeks for people aged 18 and over. Although ATAGI, the government's vaccine advisory group, still needs to give it the go-ahead. So we'll be one of the first countries in the world to approve the vaccine along with the UK and Switzerland. Yeah, and meanwhile, uh, you know, we'll find out today if the COVID isolation period will also be reduced from seven to five days. Yeah, so they're meeting at the National Cabinet today, the state and federal leaders. Um, The New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet is pushing for the reduction. He actually wants it scrapped altogether, but he wants to be united. So it'll be interesting to see where that conversation lands today and if one of Anthony Albanese's favourite Rabbitohs will be allowed out early to play rugby league on the weekend. Sydney ciders love their cappuccinos and Melbournians drink lattes, according to delivery winter data from DoorDash, Uber Eats and Deliveroo. Wow, so there it is. Melbournians have the most credible coffee order. Who would have thought? Um, so this is in the nine newspapers, this data from the delivery services. Um, They've also gone into what milk people drink. So almond milk is the most popular alternative to full cream in Sydney, whilst in Melbourne, it's soy. There you go. Yeah, and chips, burritos and burgers topped the most popular food dishes across the country over the colder months, although Queenslanders opted for ice cream. And as a Queenslander, I have to say that that is definitely real data. Mm, Yeah, and something else that won't surprise you is that Indian cuisine was a massive winner um, butter, chicken and garlic, no, and the most popular combo. We're not very adventurous, are we? No. All right, we'll catch you tomorrow again, Rihanna. Annika Smethurst is about to join me to talk about the teal wave hitting the States. So, Annika, maybe we should start this conversation by refreshing on what the term teal independent actually means because... It only came about at the last federal election. Some people say that the teal, the fact that they call them teal, is somewhere between a liberal blue and a green green. Now, that kind of fits in with the seats they target with those inner city areas where people would traditionally vote liberal, but perhaps they're looking for more action on climate change. So that quite fits. But it really did merge out of Kathy McGowan. Now, she was in a regional area. She was the Voices for Indi campaign. 
And I think through her sort of advocacy as a strong woman that came to Parliament as an independent, even though teal wasn't her colour, she started this sort of teal wave. And it really became through these voices of groups. So they're the ones that sort of rise up, the community groups, and select a local independent to run for these seats. Okay, so then we had Zali Stegall in 2019. And then in the most recent election, we got six new female MPs plus David Pocock, plus re-elected four other independents. A lot of these women who've come to Parliament had really successful careers outside of politics. As you say, running in really wealthy seats, uh, traditionally liberal heartland. And I guess the other thing to note about them is that they were supported by Climate 200, which a lot of critics said was like a political party, but it was kind of a little bit different, wasn't it? Yeah, look, I think there needs to be this sort of scrutiny because it's put on the major parties. And it was run by uh, Simon Holmes a Court and it's seen as, I guess, um, a funding arm. People who are passionate about climate change can give money to this group and then they divvy it up and help support independents that, I guess, uh, share their beliefs. That's how they do it. To understand it, I guess Climate 200 didn't back all independents. As you said, there's more of them there. Bob Catt is one of them. I don't think he's aligned with Climate 200. So it's not a sort of funding vehicle that um, will just willy-nilly hand out money to try and get rid of the major parties. They really do try and look for people that are aligned to their views. So let's turn to the upcoming state elections um, and ask that key question that we're here for today in this briefing, which is, will the teal wave swamp the state? So first up is Victoria in November, and then we'll have a New South Wales state election in March next year. So to Victoria, are there similar candidates emerging? Because part of the success of these teal candidates was the candidates themselves who all had very impressive resumes. Yeah, look, I disagree with you there, Tom. I do think the candidates were impressive, but it's all about where you run. So you could put up an amazing candidate in some seats and they just wouldn't be able to get through that traditional Labor or Liberal bloc. So part of the success of the Teals federally was to sort of pick off those seats, which the Liberal Party have held and some say taken advantage of for many years. We know the Liberal Party considers itself a broad church. They've got a conservative wing and also um, a more small L Liberal wing. And it was those seats, those inner city seats, maybe old money where people have always voted Liberal but are more progressive on uh, social issues and climate change. They're the seats they targeted. So in Victoria, two seats federally uh, went to Teals and that was the seats of Goldstein, which is in sort of the southeast, and also Kuyong held by Josh Frydenberg. So what they've done for a state election is pick the seats underneath and state seats are smaller. So there's two seats, Hawthorne and Kew, that fit snugly under Kuyong and three that roughly fit into Goldstein, and that's Sandringham, Brighton and Caulfield. And it looks like Teals are going to be running in all those seats. The majority, 80% of these, are Liberal-held seats. Only one is held by Labor. So it's something that the Coalition really have to worry about here. Yeah, absolutely. I guess, though, it is a very different context of the federal election, isn't it? Because, for one, in Victoria, you have a Labor government, not a Coalition government. And also, in the federal election... They had three things going for them. They had a government who was slow to act on climate integrity and also a leader who didn't seem to get women's issues. But it strikes me that they only have one out of those three in Victoria, potentially, if if you see integrity as an issue there. And yeah, as I said, they're up against a Labor government, not a coalition government. I guess they're so buoyed by what happened federally that they think that this can just transfer over. Now, 
Those three issues that we saw federal teal candidates get in on, climate change, integrity, women's issues, as you say, just don't neatly fit across. Now, I agree with you, integrity is a huge one. If anything, I think integrity is a bigger issue at the state elections. Mm. You've sort of seen the dodginess around uh, the selection of uh, a candidate to go off to New York and John Barillaro at the state election. There has been um, a monumental amount of probes in Victoria uh, into the Andrews government and even there's been some donor scandals around the coalition down here. So integrity at a state level is huge. It's service delivery. They have a lot of money um, being uh, thrown around. So I think they can really campaign on that. Climate less so, you know, there, there has been commitments and a lot of them have been quite progressive at a mm. state level, but it really is a federal issue when you look at signing up to a Paris climate change agreement and those sort of things. They're big national issues and women's issues also, I think, um, particularly what happened under the Morrison government. Um, I think state parliaments definitely have a way to go in cleaning up their act and supporting young women, but I think that really was something that resonated federally that just won't have the same sort of appeal. So whilst I think integrity is their one to go on, state elections are usually about hospitals and mm. schools and ambulance ramping, and that might be a little bit harder for the Teals there. So how many seats do you think they'll win in Victoria? And if they do win the number of seats you're about to guess, what impact would that have on the balance of power, if any? Yeah, look, I think of the five seats they're running in, they might get three. And what they're going to be helped by is there's heaps of marginal seats in Victoria. So I wouldn't be surprised if they picked up a queue that was held by Tim Smith. He's quite notable. Mm. He's leaving, I think, Sandringham and Brighton, which uh, sit neatly inside Goldstein. They've picked pretty good candidates to run there. And I think that could uh, leave them with a number of seats. Now, none of those at this stage, if they don't win Hawthorne, are Labor held. So it shouldn't affect the... Andrew's government, it'll just make it harder for the coalition to win. Yeah, well, Andrew's is still very popular and, you know, the Liberal Party in Victoria has been doing terribly. So is there any chance this could end up in a minority Andrew's government or will it be a majority just with some noisy independence? The most likely outcome in Victoria is that Daniel Andrews is re-elected. Now, he will take a hit. He had a huge win in 2018. His primary vote has dropped off, so but he's got a big buffer there, so I think he'll be okay. The next most likely option is not even a coalition win. It's a minority government, and that's because there are other seats. There's already some independents, non-teals. Uh, they also talk about purple independents. Now, they're more likely to run in sort of working-class areas, be somewhere between a Liberal and a Labor candidate. It, Labor could fall victim to a few of those too. So I think there'll be a natural readjustment, but you're more likely to see at this stage anyway, Labor win or a minority Labor government. So we talked through there some of the um, dynamics, you know, the, the individuals, the balance of power in the various parliaments in Australia, but this is actually part of a, a global trend where we're seeing voters move away from the major parties. Talk us through that. Yeah, it's a bit of an interesting trend and we've seen it really since about the 80s. I went and looked at this the other day and if you look at primary votes at either a state or federal election, it didn't really matter. About 95, 93% of people in the 80s, when they went to vote, voted for the coalition, so the National Party or the Liberal Party or Labor. There was a very small amount of people who voted independent or for some of the minor parties. So they just had you know, they were always going to win. That's dropped off. It's now about, depending on which election we're at, let's say 75%, sometimes a bit more. So one in four people doesn't want to vote for a major party. It was even higher at the last federal election. And it is a global trend. We're seeing it in Europe. We're seeing it in America where 
I guess it's the way we get our news, Tom. You know, you used to open a newspaper and get a broad sort of range of views and um, go, do I loosely fit on this left side of politics or loosely fit on the right side of politics? People now uh, get information in more silos. They're more based on one issue that might mobilise them. They're more likely to rally around, you know, a climate change issue or, or something like this as opposed to joining and finding interests in a broad party. Now, uh, that's going to have its own, um, I guess, consequences. Some of them will be good, some of them will be bad, mm. but we do need to assess it. We can't just let it sort of go away without discussing what this means and what could happen from that. Yeah, so you wrote a, an article in The Age about this recently and you ended your piece with a note of warning that I guess opening up to more independence might be fine when you trust the candidates, but it could lead to really extreme candidates. Are you saying that that's just something we should keep an eye on for the future, or are you genuinely concerned that we are heading towards a problematic situation? Look, if you look at democracies where this has happened, where the vote for the major parties has dropped off, it has corresponded with, I guess, more fringe groups, more extremes from the left and the right getting in. Now, I don't think the teals are part of that, but I guess with the rise of the teals comes a move away from the major parties. And we need to sort of just be a bit wary about that. Look, we do have compulsory voting, and that usually means that people and parties won't move too far away from the centre. And I think the parties have let people down and they do deserve a little bit of, uh, you know, criticism and um, maybe that they need this sort of shake up to go and try and win people back. But most people, when I talk to them, say, well, I like my teal or I like my greens or whoever it is. But when there's an opposition and when there's a minor party or an independent they don't agree with, they don't think they have the same right to be there. And that's just not the case. You know, for every uh, extreme on the left, there's a risk you could get an extreme on the right. And that is what's happening in European Parliament. So I just think as we see this decline in the major parties, we need to be a little bit aware of what mm. has happened overseas with that and what that could mean here. So these trends you're talking about, say, for example, the way we've changed our media consumption, what sources of information we trust, greater sort of siloing of, of cultural groups. Are these sort of demographic generational changes? Do you think us younger voters are seeing politics very differently from our parents? Yes and no. I think as, you know, everybody goes through their youth, they probably uh, see things different. There was always a saying that, you know, everybody broadly starts off to the left and if ends up more to the right as they get older. That's not happening as much. I don't think parties can rely on that uh, trend as much, which they used to. I do think once people move away from the major parties, especially if they, you know, voted for a teal and anyone who's listening who voted for an independent at the last election and then if that independent seems to be doing okay, they tend to get re-elected. So I think once the major parties lose the support, it's actually really easy for people to start staying away and looking for, uh, you know, to keep their votes away from the major parties. It's more of a fact that major parties are on the nose than anything. It will be really interesting in New South Wales, I think, um, where you've got a coalition government who's had some massive scandals and some real problems and probably more of a chance of that balance of power being quite even and some North Shore Sydney seats that would probably work quite well for these sort of teal independents given what we saw at the federal election. So that could really be one to watch, I think, where they might end up with more power. This is for a March election, so they've got a little bit more time, but um, at seats like North Shore, Willoughby, Lane Cove, 
they're the ones they're sort of targeting and they do overlap with a number of ones that were won, you know, North Sydney and those sort of seats that really turned at the federal election. But when you've got that many volunteers, Tom, that were out there door knocking for mm. these people, that's something the major parties just can't get. It's really, really hard. You talk to Liberals especially and they say, you know, the average ages of their branches is basically deceased. They're very old people. You know, they're not going to be knocking on uh, 400 doors over a weekend that you can get sort of these younger volunteers that are joining the Teal campaigns to do. So uh, those people could be redirected. So it's going to make it a little bit hard. They're really working against the clock. But as you say, New South Wales have a little bit more time uh, and some of those North Shore seats really could be at risk. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we are going deep on the Chris Dawson verdict. We'll speak to one of the journalists from the Australian newspaper who helped with the Teacher's Pet and the Teacher's Trial podcast. Listener.